Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Uh, I want to talk about this uh, shift that happens in, for all of us. Uh, we have this shift that starts in childhood, okay? And, and there's this moment, like when you're little, you do what your parents tell you to do, for the most part, except for you really defiant children out there. Uh, you, you know, like, yeah, hooray for them. Uh, you, you know, they say you eat your broccoli, you got to eat your broccoli, you do the thing. But there's these little shifts that happen along the way where you start to get to choose what you want to do. And you start being given a little bit more and more freedom. I remember, this will date me, right? But I remember <clears throat> being dropped off at the Pizza Hut when I was in middle school where I could go to the Pizza Hut and we watched The Lion King at the movie theater and I didn't have to have my parents with me. This was a big deal. It was like, oh man, like freedom, you know? My mom's not here watching me. I don't need a chaperone. I'm going to Pizza Hut by myself or, you know, with a friend or whatever. Like, it, was a, it was a big deal, right? It's just that little taste of freedom. We love it, right? College was the same way for me. I went to college like a thousand miles away from where I grew up. And so it was like freedom. I can do what I want when I want. Now, a lot of you had that experience as well. And for some of you, it didn't go well for you. And some of you, it was, it was fine. It worked out okay. But we, we just love that feeling. We even love it as adults. We are, we are addicted to, we are hooked on a feeling. And the feeling that we are hooked on is being free, being able to choose, being able to do what I want as an adult. I don't have to, you know, I can spoil my dinner if I want. I can eat dessert first. I can order Chinese tonight. I can, I can do what I want, right? And, and we love that. It's, 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 it's great. Um, and, 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 and we've all experienced it as adults, and there's a lot of good things about it, the freedom to choose to do what you want to do. But I think it also comes with a, a, a bit of a downside, all that freedom, um, there's a downside to it. And you saw it over the past year during the pandemic. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not here to argue one way or the other about like <clears throat> what measures were taken publicly, uh, what, what, what measures were taken as a society for the sake of public health. I have opinions on all those things. Um, the, the point is, the, the challenge that you run into a society where everybody clings to their freedom is when you want to do something as a society and you say, these measures everybody should take on for the sake of the common good or the public good, um, that, that comes into clash, right, with our personal freedoms and our personal, you can't make me do that, you can't make me whatever, vaccine, wear, wear a mask, like whatever the thing is, you can't make me do that. I have my rights. I have my freedom. I can do what I want, right? These are challenges. And if anything does come along where, where, uh, where the whole society needs to do something together and you allow everybody in society the, the freedom to do whatever they want to do, that's a, that's a problem. That's a challenge, right? Like how, how can we all work together when our, when our individual rights and freedoms come into clash in some way with the, the, this idea of the common good or the public good? Um, the, that tension in America... And it's really a tension in most societies in the world. We feel it pretty strongly in America. Because in, in America, the, the idea of, of freedom has been baked in so deeply into our founding documents. Um, and you may remember um, that Thomas Jefferson phrased it this way, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of 
happiness, right? Not freedom, but you need freedom in order to have life and liberty, I suppose. Freedom's kind of baked in there. And then this idea that we're supposed to pursue happiness. If you think about it, that is a crazy statement to make in a country's founding documents. And we're the only country in the world that puts happiness, which is, let's be honest, a fleeting emotion. And we are putting that in our founding documents as in, this is what we are about. We are about pursuing happiness. It's weird as a society that we decided that is the thing. And yet, here we are, you know, a couple hundred years later, we're still pursuing it. And, and you can see, and you've probably felt, there's some downsides to that, to, to the limitless freedom and the pursuit of happiness. We, there's some downsides to it. In fact, early on in the American experiment, um, a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville came to the U.S. from France. France's, France had a monarchy, and it was starting to dissolve. And they were looking at America, this young democracy, and they were trying to say, like, he came over to observe what did he see in America, what were Americans like. And it's really interesting to read what he said about Americans in 1830 because it's a window into our soul. It's a window into who we were um, and, and really says something about who we have become. I want, I want to read to you this quote from de Tocqueville. Listen to what he said about his observations about Americans. In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest circumstances that the world affords. It seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow, and I thought them serious and almost sad, even in their pleasures. The chief reason for this contrast is that they are forever brooding over advantages they do not possess. <clears throat> it's strange to see with what feverish ardor the Americans pursue their own welfare and to watch the vague dread that constantly torments them, lest they should not have chosen the shortest path to which they may lead to it. A native of the United States clings to this world's goods as if he were certain never to die, and if he is so hasty in grasping at all within his reach that one would suppose he was constantly afraid of not living long enough to enjoy them. He clutches everything. He holds nothing fast, but soon loosens his grip to pursue fresh gratifications. Death finally comes, and it stops him before he has grown weary of this useless pursuit of a complete felicity that always flees from him. Aren't you glad I'm back? <laughs> I mean, but if we're going to be real, and, and, I, and yes, 4th of July is coming. I just thought we'd give something fresh to celebrate. Um, if we're going to be real about where we are, we need to be real about where we've been and who we have been. And some of that was generations before we got here. But, like, if you're going to get better, if you're going to get healthier, if you're going to get whole, you first have to, like, pick up the, lo- the rock and look at all the ugly things underneath and go, like, oh, this is kind of ugly, this is kind of weird. And this is who we are. This is baked into the country that we have been forever grasping at these things and we, and we don't get them. And so I, I wanted to do this series um, as, as, we're, as we're studying through the book of, of 1 Corinthians, um, not because I, I want to change the American system. I don't think that's going to happen. But, but I wanted to do this and, and, and speak to followers of Jesus, because if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and I know that's not everybody in this room, but if you, if you do claim to be a follower of Jesus, then for you, America ain't it. It's just not, it's not the whole thing. It's, it's, it's a thing. It's where you live. You may have pride. You may, you know, grill steaks and have fireworks and whatever. Fine. But, like, it's not the whole thing. We are Christians 
first. We, are, we identify as being, as being part of the body of Christ. We are connected to Christ. We, we, we have a relationship with God. That is the, this found, foundational and fundamental thing about us. Not, it's not that we are Americans or that we're Republicans or Democrats or capitalists or socialists or any other things that people get wrapped up in. It's not those things. Not that those don't matter at all. They just matter way less than the foundational piece that we are, first and foremost, followers of, of Jesus. And, and that brings up some questions because we need to consider as followers of Jesus, when should we assert our rights? When should we say, man, my freedom, I'm allowed to do what I want? Well, Americans may answer that one way, but as Christians, should we answer that a little bit differently? What, what matters there? When do we assert our rights? What, how, how much should we pursue happiness? If that's a cultural ideal, is that a Christian ideal? Is that really what we should be what we should be doing. Um, when should we assert our rights? When should we lay down our rights? Those, those kind of things are the thing, other things to pursue besides happiness. I want to talk about this because this, this stuff matters. And it matters especially in this last year um, when freedom and, ha- and happiness came in conflict with public health. And, and people started to really form their tribes around that stuff, right? The, the, you had the, this is my freedom and you can't tell me what to do, people. And then you had the, trust the science and we, you know, and over here and say, you got you to gotta do what the science says and we have public health experts for this and then the other people are like, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm an expert. And like, like all the things, right? Like you had this, this war sort of going back and forth and, and, and people formed their tribes and I understand that but as followers of Jesus, we have other things to consider as we think about those questions and all the other questions that are to come. We have to consider not just what am I free to do? What are my rights? What do I get to do? What, what can I do? We have to think about things like, what does love require of me? What does the gospel say about this? What does the gospel require of me? What does obedience to Jesus look like in this context and in this situation? So I want to dive in. We've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And it is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in about the year 54 AD to a church that he had started in the city of Corinth in Greece. Uh, in about 51 AD, he wrote the letter in about 54, and he's writing back to them. They've they've reached out to him. There's some issues that have popped up in the church, and and honestly, the church is in some ways having a hard time holding it together. They're struggling with unity. They're struggling with all sorts of issues that are popping up culturally. They're they're in the midst of a city that does some pretty wild stuff, and so they're trying to sort through all of that and figure out how do I live faithfully in my time and my day. And and this issue of freedom and and rights and responsibilities and those kind of things, that, that comes up for them as well. And so I want to I dive into it. Now, the issue that he's specifically talking about in chapter 8 that we're on now is about food. Um, and at first, it's probably going to sound less applicable to you because Americans don't really care about food. Uh, but um, I think the principles that are in here are really good even for us today. So uh, I'm going to actually get through the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 8, which... Um, it's not a long chapter, so you'll still make it to lunch. Because um, it's about food, and it's important, you know. Um, all right, 1 Corinthians 8, let me put it up on the screen. Start with verse 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, I'm air quoting because he quotes it, right? This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. All right, so 
Paul, when he writes them, he's responding to some things that they've written about that we don't have that letter of the things they wrote to him about, but apparently this is one of them. He's, he's saying, okay, now about the issue around food that's offered to idols or meat sacrificed to idols. So what you had in the ancient world were temples um, that for Greek and Roman gods. You've heard of Apollos and Artemis and, and Zeus and, and all these things. And so you have these temples in these cities. And people would offer meat as sacrifice. They'd slaughter an animal. They'd offer up the meat as a sacrifice to those gods. And of course, because those gods are not actually there, they're not actually thing, you offer up the meat sacrifice, and then you're like, okay, I'm done. Now I'm going to take the meat back, because the god didn't like eat it or whatever. And then you're going to take it to the market and sell it. So you're selling, and this was you know, a cheap form of getting meat. And so you had this issue of, cropping up in the church, should I, as a follower of Jesus, um, eat meat that has already been sacrificed to idols, or should I not eat that? Should I be like, that's not okay? Um, Or if I go to my friend's house, and maybe they're not a follower of Jesus, and they offer me meat, do I need to check with them, like, was this sacrifice to a a pagan god? I don't know. Um, So that's kind of the issue that they're wrestling with. Now, that sounds a little silly to us, in a modern context, where we would be like, who cares where the meat was sacri- like offered? Like, they got some cheap meat, it's pretty good, like, just eat it, right? But the truth is, food has always been a matter of conscience, and it even is today in a lot of parts of the world. There's religious concerns, that's why food is listed as halal or kosher for different religious beliefs. They go, okay, you can't have food that's this way, or don't eat pork, and, and all that kind of stuff. There's some things like that, right? But even... If you're not religious, there's a secular version of conscience around food, right? Um, And it's like, hey, these eggs, are this cage-free? Was this animal ethically raised and, I guess, ethically slaughtered? I don't know what that looks like, but I'm not a farmer. Um, You know, we have those kind of issues that we raise. They're not the religious ones, but they're still issues of conscience around food. And we, we, have, we have just those concerns. You see that all the time in our culture. I, I, I remember going to a butcher shop here in Carytown and getting some steak for my birthday. And they said, um, and they started to tell me like about the farm and about the cow that like donated the steak that I was going to eat. And I felt like that was too close for me. I don't, I don't need to know his name. Um, I like farm-to-table in theory, but that's, I don't need them right next to each other, you know? Like, this is kind of weird, but like, that's kind of where we're at. They're like, I need you to know that this cow was loved and had a wonderful home. And I'm like, but it ended badly for him, right? Because I'm about, it's weird, right? It's just a weird thing. Um, uh, so anyway, so we have these issues around food now. Um, so, so Paul brings that up, the issue, and then he tells them that the, the meat that's sacrificed to idol, these, these false gods, that those gods actually don't even exist. Um, so l- let, me, let me continue on with verse 4. Therefore, as to, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no god but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, and as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul says, okay, look, um, 
here's what we know. We know that gods are fake news. We know that idols don't actually point to anything real. Like, we know this whole system of bowing down to the gods of Zeus and Artemis and all that. We know that that's not, that stuff's not real. Um, all of that is basically like religious theater and that it doesn't matter. Now, if we stop there and just take that of what he says, we're going to miss the point. Because when I read that, uh, I, I really get into it. I'm like, yes, exactly. Like, it's all fake out there. None of that is true. Done. Period. The truth wins out again. We're done here. And Because and, I get really attached to the truth. Like, I don't care. You know, I don't care how it makes you feel. If it's true, if it's right, it's got to be true and right. Let's just focus on that. And if we focus on just that and say, well, this is just what is true, we're going to miss Paul's point. In fact, we're going to make the point he's actually speaking uh, against. Um, the key for me is it, it's got to be true. And if you're believing something not true, I want to help you see the truth so you can see things more clearly. I'm super committed to what's true, what is, not what we're pretending to be true. But this is what Paul pushes on, this kind of knowledge when you know something about something, you know it's true, you know it's right. Um, it, it can kind of puff you up and you can become arrogant about it. And you can actually turn off a lot of people when you're trying to get along with other people. You can turn them off by flexing how much you know. You know this. You know that people can know something that they, is true and it's right and that it'll turn you off when they tell you because you have an uncle who will forward a thing to you and will say to you, well, I mean, this is, you need to wake up. Like, this is, don't you see what's going on out there? We all have, like, an uncle or a brother or a cousin or someone. There's always somebody who's, like, super into it and they want you to wake up and they're telling you the thing, Right? Like, that's kind of how it works. And, and there's almost no one in the history of the world was like, oh my gosh, I do need to wake up. Man, you forwarded this to me. This came at, this forward changed my life. It came at exactly the right moment. And now I am awake. I was asleep. But now I've, like, that doesn't happen. Um, what Paul challenges us, us to do, challenges us to do is to, is to read the room. Is to go, okay, you have knowledge about a thing, um, but that's just going to make you arrogant. Uh, understand who's in the room and be loving because love is going to build something. Love is productive. The question isn't just, is this right? The question is, is it loving? Am I being loving here? Now, this is super tricky. If I say, hey, the question is, you know, you need to think about being loving rather than being right, for a lot of Americans, we would we'd love that idea. It's like, oh, yeah. All love, be kind, no judgment, zero judgment. This is great. But truth is still truth, and real is still real, and, and, and the idols are not real, and the gods that they're worshiping are not real. <clears throat> it's just that there are some things where it doesn't help to assert how right you are. It's not helpful. Um, you can be right, and you can also be very unloving. And we tend to go to the extremes. We become really truthy and not loving. So all truth and no grace is legalism. Or we become all loving and no truth. And all, all grace and love and no truth is sentimentality. And, and the gospel actually challenges both of those things and says we can do better than this. We don't need to just, you know, we don't need to just hug it out and we don't need to just beat on people with the truth. We, we, can, we can do better than that. Um, so, so Paul cast this conversation 
in terms of, and this will throw us off a little bit, he casts it in terms of a weak conscience and a strong conscience. Listen to what he says, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we did. Um, uh, no better off, uh, off if, we, if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if, it's his, con- if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So he uses this idea of a weak conscience and a strong conscience, and he kind of uses it, I would say, almost the opposite of the way we typically use it. Like if we say someone's got a weak conscience, we kind of mean they don't have much of a conscience at all, like they're a serial killer. Like this doesn't, this should bother you what you're doing, and it doesn't. That we would say that this kind of a weak conscience. Whereas we would say a strong conscience is like a lot of things bother you. You know, you're, 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 you're very careful about all the things because a lot of things bother you. Um, Paul's kind of using it the opposite of that. He's saying if you have a weak conscience, um, then a lot of things, uh, then, then these things will bother you. And a strong conscience means that these things are not going to, uh, that these things are, are not going to bother you. Um, we have people in our culture for whom food, uh, the Paul's example here of food, for who, food preferences are a matter of conscience. And not just religious ones, right? Like, um, I, you know, I have friends who are vegans, right? So vegan is, often it is a matter of conscience. I don't, um, I saw forks over knives and I can no longer eat meat, right? Because I, I, I don't like what is going on in the industry. I don't like how animals are treated. It becomes, I can't in good conscience eat this. I mean, it's not my job in the church to argue with any of these groups or any people about food preferences. And Paul says that this is not the, the issue. My job is to love people well. Um, and, and the challenge then is to, in the church, no matter where you land on food or other issues that we'll get to in a second, the challenge is um, how, do we, how do we be for the other person? How do we think of the other person and their concerns and their sensitivities and, and, and be aware of that and be sensitive to that? This is sticky in 2021 for us because we make a big deal out of so many things. Um, so many, um, you know, sort of microaggressions. There's so many things that are like, oh, I can't believe you would do this. I can't believe you would say this. Things that, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago were like, well, of course you would say that. Now, um, uh, they're just a, a, a big deal. And, and it's really a challenge. Um, I think the hardest part for me is if, if I feel like someone is living outside of truth, um, they're living a lie, li- believing a lie, how do I love them well, because I just want to go straight to the lie and say, you're, you're believing a lie, and then when they want me to play along with the lie, I'm like, I don't want to play along, what do I have to do? Because I get very attached to the truth, and I get very attached to being right. And we all fall into that trap, right? To, to pick a topic, we, uh, like COVID, right? Whatever you believe about what has happened in this country and in the world over the last however many months we're into it now, um, whatever you believe is right, you got it, you figured it out. Like, the way you understand it, it's right. The way I understand it, it's right. Um, 
And I say that because you're not willingly and knowingly believing something that's wrong. You wouldn't do that. You're like me. You want to believe the right thing. So what you believe is right, right? And you go gather evidence that, hey, I, I believe this and I'm right and here's the evidence of why I'm right. And then someone else disagrees with you. You're wrong. I'm right. Here's the evidence of why I'm right. Like we all do this on all sorts of topics. We are very, very attached to being right. And I get it. And especially in a year where things were so funky and things have changed so much in the culture and there's so much uncertainty swirling around us, being right feels good, doesn't it? Like if you're stressed out, doesn't it feel kind of good to be right? I mean, things can still suck, but you're right. And that's got its own reward, right? In fact, you're tempted to be like, I'm going to get online and tell everybody how right I am because that, and then other people are going to like it and I'm going to feel more right and it feels even better. Like we all do this. That's not like a peculiar thing you do or you do, right? Like we all do it. We're, we're addicted to being, being right. And, and, and Paul's instruction is rather than be right, be loving. You can still be right all day long, but rather than blast someone, love them. Make room for them. This is why he ends this section by saying, so if meat is a problem for my brother, I just won't eat meat. At least not when I'm around him or her. So the takeaway is this, two things. Number one, we have to be about Jesus. None of this makes sense without first being connected to Christ as, as the source as the reason for our existence, as our hope, as our purpose, as our mission. Back in verse, uh, or, um, it's, Paul mentions Jesus a lot. If you look at verse 11, just listen to what he says there uh, briefly in, in verse 11. Uh, and so by your knowledge, this weak person destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. He, he brings this topic, which you think is about food and meat sacrificed to idols. He brings it back to Jesus and says, um, remember that the people you're working with and the people that we're all together in the church with or whatever, Christ died for these people. This is the, the, the central hope of the gospel, that Christ has died for the ungodly, that we're, we're going to be raised to a new life with him. Like He brings always back to this. We, we have, the followers of Jesus, we have a purpose, we have a mission, and so of, of all people, we aren't the people who sweat the small stuff. Um, and, and Paul lived that in his life. All the things he experienced, where he went, the things he did, um, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, Paul was consistently always pulling it back to, what am I here for? What am I about? I'm about Jesus and his mission. Philippians 1.21, Paul says this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a guy who is actually saying that if I die, it's going to be even better. If, it, if I live, it's good. If I die, it's going to be even better. I'm telling you, if you're the kind of person that can sit here today and say, if I live, it's good. And if I die, it'll be even better. If you are that person, you are basically untouchable in this world. Because what can people take from you? You could be rich. Fine. I've got money. I'm going to use it to help people find Jesus. You're poor. Fine. I'm going to take my lack of resources and use, use that as a way to build my dependence on Jesus. You have good things happen, great, praise God. Bad things happen, great, this is going to teach me to walk in the way of Christ who suffered. Like, there's, there's nothing that can be thrown your way that you can't point back towards Jesus or that you shouldn't point back towards Jesus. And so I, 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 I get frustrated if that's true that really it's all about Jesus. I get frustrated when Christians get sucked into things that aren't all about Jesus. Like when we get sucked into politics too much. I understand why people who don't follow Jesus are sucked into politics generally. 
Um, because if you think this world is all there is and this is all we've got, then all of what happens here really, really matters because it's all you're going to get and all you'll ever have hope for. But if you believe there's more to come, that th- this life is the beginning of eternity and that there's a hope and, of heaven and there's an eternity and paradise and all of those things, um, then, then you can't get too attached to what's happening here. And, and so we can't get so sucked into, you know, this person won an election, this person didn't. Like, do I need, do I have preferences? Sure. Do I need them to win for me to be something? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, do, do I need things to work out a certain way? No. Uh, do I need to prove my virtue on social media by letting people know what choice I made about whatever hot issue of the day is? No. I get why people do it. I get why people do it. I just don't understand why Christians do it. If our hope is in Christ, then it needs to be in Christ. First and foremost, not in our lives working out exactly the way we would like them to work out. So number one, we have to be about Jesus. And number two is this. Put your focus on being loving first and let God sort out what is right. Be loving first, let God sort out what is right. 1 Corinthians 8.13, again, the way he ends this chapter. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. If your food choice is a problem for your brother, he says, make a different one. It's just not that important in the hierarchy of, of things. And, and we want to say, but wait, I can do what I want. I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. I can do what I want. You can, but you're missing the point. Read the room. Understand who's here. Understand who you're with. And act in a loving way towards them. Adjust accordingly to make room for them. This is the only shot we have in the church to maintain unity. It's is if all of us, no matter where we land, weak conscience, strong conscience, and that kind of stuff, food, all the other issues, the only shot we have is to think of the other person and go, how can I act in a loving way and serve them and not just assert my rights and my, I get it my way. Uh, maybe a, a modern application of this would be alcohol. There are, for, for some people in, in our church, there are people who would say, alcohol's fine, I can drink alcohol, I don't get drunk. Um, I'm, I'm, I think it's fine, no problem. It is a gift from God, that kind of thing. Um, and other people would say, that is the devil's water, and it is bad, and it's a problem, and it's not good. Or they would just say, you know, like, for my own conscience, I just feel uncomfortable with it. I'd rather just stay away from it. I've seen a lot of bad things. I've got family history. I understand those positions. I understand all of those positions. Um, and so how do we work together? Well, we lay down our preferences for the other person. We look at the other one and go, okay, um, do I have to make it, not, not I don't drink, therefore I'm going to drink because you drink. You don't, no, you don't have to go there. But you, you can go like, do I need to criticize? Do I need to be right here? Or can I lay down my preferences um, in order for there to be unity? So the, the way to practice this this week, I was trying to think of what would be practical because really this is the beginning of a conversation we'll have for several weeks. I think we need to make love our filter. And so before we say anything to someone at work, before we have that call with our mom, before we, uh, you know, before you say that thing on social media, before, before we, we talk to our kids, um, we need to go with that love filter and go like, is this loving? Is what I'm about to say, do, act, my behavior, is it a loving thing to do towards someone? Yes, the truth matters. It matters what is true here. Right and wrong matters. But Christians are going to be known by their love. They're not going to be known by 
did they get exactly all the truth and really hammered it with people so that people knew what was right? They, they were told, we're going to be known by being loving first. Now, how we are loving, love itself is going to need a better definition probably, right? And we're going to get to that later in Corinthians. There's a whole chapter on love where it gets pretty specific. You've probably heard it read at weddings. We will, we will get into that. Um, and then there are other issues that are going to come up with this as well around rights and more stuff about rights and freedom and responsibility and, and what we can do versus what we should do and who defines the should and all of that stuff. We'll get into that in, in weeks to come, uh, starting, starting next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you um, for life and liberty, and I thank you for um, what that has meant to us historically and as a, as a country, as people shaped by that. But God, I, I pray we're open to a, a new way of imagining that, that um, with great power comes great responsibility, with, with freedom comes some limitations, and that we can embrace those things so that we can know you and, and follow you. Um, God, uh, may we take this issue around food and be able to apply it a little more broadly so that we can um, really think about how to be loving towards our brother and sister, uh, loving towards our neighbors, um, and, and help us to be a church and a people who lead with love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.